Hello, everybody. Welcome to Crystal Kyle and Friends. We're going to be talking to the amazing Jeff Stein today. Jeff Stein is a Washington Post reporter, and um, he's a straight economics guy, and he's the best in that realm that I've ever seen. And if you watch my show or watch Breaking Points, then yeah. you know very well that uh, we always use We his rely numbers. on Jeff. Yeah, we rely on him for a lot. And he everything. is, I mean, he's just really good at his job. Like, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I just want to, for the record, let me just state this. There's not a single other reporter from some main publication or some main outlet that I would want on this show. Not a single one. He's the only one who really makes the cut, in my mind. Mm. I like the outside, like David Sirota, great, you know, yeah. Daily Poster, mm -hmm. Jordan Chariton, great, just the sludge, all the, like the outsider, the people who are really, the labor reporters. Yeah. Who's the one you talk to all the time? Kim Kelly's her name? Yeah. Yeah, she's wonderful. So like there are outsiders who do great work, but very rarely is there somebody inside the club who's like just, spitting facts and that's what jeff stein does i might put a couple other people on that list but uh Wrong. certainly <laughs> jeff is at the top of the list and i want to get into him like with the nitty-gritty of what's going on and what we can ex expect because no one has better visibility into that than he does yeah so you're going to learn all about uh the the debt limit the debt ceiling what's going on with that you're going to learn all about reconciliation what are we likely to get what's possible to get so on and so forth so anyway i really look forward to that but before we get to that um so Bill Maher, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's, I'm embarrassed that I ever liked this guy. You know what I mean? But I know yeah. where it comes from, though, and we've had this conversation yeah. before. But I know, you know, when, when I'm in my early teens and this guy's got that, like, arrogance and certitude yeah. and cockiness about him, as, like, an unsure teen, you look at that and you're like, ooh, he knows stuff. Like, right. I want to be like him. I want to carry myself the way he does. Yeah. This level of confidence and Which is funny because in the world. You've told me that actually behind the scenes is a little awkward. Um, yeah, I would say that's fair. And I that's, would say I've, I had a very nice experience on his show, I'm going to say. And, don't soft pedal it. Okay. He's awkward. Anyway, um, but I also I want to defend you and say his politics have changed. They have, but, you know, I overlooked certain things that I shouldn't have overlooked anyway. It's not like mm. his politics were much better in a, in a certain time frame, but it's not like they were ever really good. He had huge blind spots. I, mean, I remember huge on Politically Incorrect, he defended the Vietnam War. Really? Yes. Like, <laughs> And there was always little nuggets like that that he would drop, and I'd be like, what? You're like, that was weird. Anyway, but he's still good. He's just wrong in that one thing. And then now he's just gone to Boomerville. It's it's a mess. So anyway, um, Bill Maher, this is a, a title in Salon. Bill Maher defends Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and says they have their thumb on average voter. So, um, I, I know. So, uh, let me just read everybody a little bit from this. They say, real-time host Bill Maher defended an obstructionist streak among moderate Democrats this week, saying Manchin and Cinema quote, might have their thumb more on the pulse than the average Democrat, than the hundreds of other congresspeople and senators who support advancing the $1.5 trillion bill and the $3.5 trillion bill. Um, Manchin and Cinema blew up those plans. Quote, they're mad at them because they're not progressive enough forgetting that they only got elected because they're not progressives. They're moderates. Here's my question. Does spending more money make you a better person or a bigger moderate? Maybe these two might have their thumb on the pulse on, on the average Democrat in the country. Here's the thing about that. That is 100% verifiably, provably, demonstrably incorrect because there's been endless polling on this bill, endless polling on this. I've talked about it on my show. You've shown this stuff on your show. It, and the thing is, it's not even close. Yes. So the overall bill polls at about 60%. Mm -hmm. But then when you get into the specific provisions, a provision like paid family leave 
polls it over 70%. And you go one by one, it's not even close. Everyone is popular. So what he's saying here is just total claptrap garbage. And this is why he's the only person in the country who went from a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2015 and 2016 to an Amy <laughs> Klobuchar supporter <laughs> in 2020. Who goes from Bernie to Klobuchar? What, did your brain get uh, microwaved in the years in between? Did you put a waffle iron on your head? Like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, Havana syndrome. Yeah, that's good. Um, Okay, so just to run down the numbers of how ridiculous this is, let's talk about the key provisions that they object to. With cinema in particular, um, her big objections are to the Medicare prescription drug reform. To lower drug prices, right. To lower drug prices, which is just like Medicare being able to negotiate with pharma to save everybody money. That polls in Arizona between 80 and 90 percent support, okay? It is supported by almost everyone who is not actively working as a pharmaceutical executive right. and maybe even a few of those if they somewhere deep down have a little bit of a conscience. It is wildly popular. That's insane. The other thing she has a big issue with is taxing the rich and taxing corporations. I did a whole monologue over on Breaking Points about how taxing the rich is one of the more popular provisions that's even being proposed here. People see the way that this is rigged, the way that they get screwed, the way that the Bezoses and Musks of the world and Bill Gates and all of these people get off paying virtually nothing, and they're all for lifting taxes on the rich and on corporations. So this idea is completely insane. Joe Manchin, he wants to means test everything. He's saying putting up choices of you can either pick between paid, paid family, family leave, leave, the child tax credit, or affordable child care. Says pick one of the three, like like we're in the movie Saw. Pull you know, on, I want to play a game. Pull on all of those, and every single one of them in the state of West Virginia, wildly popular. Now, what I will say is that Democrats in general, in West Virginia in particular, but also somewhat in Arizona, are not that popular. And so when the media does a terrible job and is just like, oh, they're standing up to Democrats, then that gives them some juice with Republicans. But even that, cinema's being like made into some hero on Fox News and other conservative. I saw her approval rating with Republicans is still like 40%. So even with them saying you're amazing and you're great and thank you for standing up to the Democrats and their big spending socialism or whatever, Republicans are still not with you. So it's absurd. And the last thing that I'll say on this is I think it's once again a confusion and a lack of precise thinking about different parts of the progressive agenda. Some parts of the sort of more woke left, especially the kind of language and the condemnation and those sorts of things can be unpopular. That is certainly the case. But to even call these people moderates is so absurd when they are representing the views of like 10 to 20 percent of the population in their opposition to some of these programs. They are on the radical fringe of society. They are not representing their constituents. They do not have their finger on the pulse. They are standing in the way of, the pro of progress because they are bought and paid for. And that is the bottom line. To your point, and I've seen this now, this is the only trick that the right has on this front and that a lot of uh, people in the media have on this front is I, I saw I forget which publication it was in. But there was a publication that described the bill as a woke agenda. And I remember reading that going, this has nothing to do. When you think about wokeness, what do you think about? <sighs> some, somebody, some college kid with pink hair who's protesting to say, I don't want Ben Shapiro on my campus. He's, right. You know, his words are violence or whatever the fuck. 
Am, am I against that? Do I think Ben Shapiro should be able to talk again? Of course, of course Ben Shapiro should be able to talk again. Like, that's not hard. But to just break out the word wokeness as if that, like, mm -hmm. blows up the entire conversation. Mm -hmm. We're talking about paid family leave. We're talking about getting health care to people. We're talking about elder care and pre-K. None of that has anything to do with wokeness. So, and, okay, so this gets to the question about Bill Maher. What the hell happened to Bill Maher? <laughs> I mean, listen, uh, my theory is it. it's multi-pronged, but... Um, Trump, for one thing, broke his brain. Yeah. Where he went from like, yeah, we need transformational tra change. The, you know, the way forward is to m catch us up to the rest of the developed world. He used to talk about that all the time. He went from that to Klobuchar, who's a status quo manager mm -hmm. extraordinaire. Um, and also, I just think he doesn't probably have any normal friends anymore in a normal like income bracket. So he doesn't talk to regular people, and he can't really see the pain and hurt out there. So now it's all just a partisan political game to him. And the other thing is, like, to go back to the wokeness point, he went a little bit too far down that uh, IDW pipeline, intellectual dark web pipeline, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, you just start to only care most about wokeness, and you just associate the so-called far left with, with wokeness. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you know, even... Bernie in 2020, it's like, oh, he's gone too far, you know, oh, he's too woke to, to win or to support or whatever. And it's just brainworms, Bill. You have brainworms at this point. What's your theory on them? I think your theories are pretty good. They um, always are. Because, yeah, the Klobuchar thing, the way that he explained that is we just need generic Democrat. Right. And that's what she is. And if you're if you're making that case that all you care about is getting someone elected. Right. Like poli policies don't matter. It's impact on human beings don't matter. It means number one, your brain's been broken by Trump. And number two, you've lost touch with the struggles of regular ordinary people. I do want to say um, in his defense, the people who are around him who, you know, are like helping him out in his life, like the workers who mm -hmm. are around him, they love him was mm -hmm. my experience, that they're genuinely loyal to him, that he's genuinely good to him, good to them, mm -hmm. which to me is always a really important commentary when I would see people at MSNBC who were like super shitty to the hair and makeup artists and just like assholes who treat people with contempt who never even learn the crew members' names, like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I think that is very telling and very important. So this isn't a judgment on his character, but I do think that your theories are probably pretty good theories. Yeah, and just the final point I want to make about this is he ended up using the mainstream media trick in his segment here because he kept going back to the amount we're spending, the amount we're spending, what's the top line number? And so when you say 3.5 trillion, 3.5 trillion, 3.5 trillion, yeah, that sounds like a lot of money. And so it can make you recoil a little bit. But what you're doing is obfuscating from here's what's in the bill. Mm -hmm. It's not 3.5 trillion where it's all going to some Wall Street schmuck. It's not 3.5 trillion yeah. where we're going to bomb Burundi. It's 3.5 trillion, which by the way is paid for with tax increases on the wealthy, and it's to give people pre-K and give people college yes. and all sorts of wonderful things that virtually every other developed country has anyway. So to see he's at this point now. Yeah. You're defending mansion and cinema in the middle of the most important fight we've arguably had on the economy since the New Deal and you're defending the obstructionists who are basically Republicans? Get the get out of here, Bill. Get out. Retire, old man. You're you know, just move on. Move on, dog. Like it's over. It's done. You and the 17 grandpas who watch you can go have fun <laughs> in the nursing home for all I care. It is it's a sad state of affairs. It sure is. Say that. Okay, so now let's, uh, that was an interesting discussion. This one may even be more interesting. So, um, 
I sent this to you the other day. This mm-hmm. came across my radar, no pun intended, from mm-hmm. what you used to call your monologues mm-hmm. over at uh, the Hill. Um, R. Kelly, as we all know, he's been found guilty of 14,712 charges. Uh, and relatedly, <laughs> and he much it, overdue, much overdue indeed. Uh, so he's done from everything I've read and heard and seen. This isn't like the Cosby situation where there was like a technicality and it's like, well, I was able to get out because of this or that. No, that's not happening in this case. They got him dead to rights. There's so many witnesses. There's so many specifics. There's enough evidence and all that stuff. There's multiple cases still ongoing, by the way, even though he was just found guilty. So I saw that YouTube decided. We're axing both of his YouTube channels. We're just pulling down both of his YouTube channels. Now, of course, what do those YouTube channels have on it? All the songs that you know and I know and everybody knows that were played on the radio 24-7 not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And now, listen, I don't know. I didn't look yet. I don't know. My guess is there's still, you know, other people with other YouTube channels who might just throw up one yeah, of the videos, whether right. I Believe I Can Fly or any of the Fiesta with him and Jay-Z or these are all... Tremendous songs, but I digress. Um, <laughs> but listen, this gets into a serious conversation. that, And I polled my audience on this, my Twitter followers, and I yeah. said, when somebody's a proven scumbag and a criminal, and even the worst kind of criminal, you could argue, right? Do you say, listen, separate the art and the artist, and I'm still going to enjoy the music because it's good? Or do you say, I can't do it. I can't do it anymore because, uh, you know... I don't like I I can't I don't even like it anymore or, or I feel like I'm contributing mm. to something negative if I listen to it. So now I'm going to pose that question to you. What do you think is it mo- I don't know if you want to bring morality and ethics into this or whatever. You could describe it however you want, but do you have a line on that? Do you feel like I shouldn't listen to this because this dude was like raping underage girls, you know? Yeah. I mean, the shit he did was atrocious. Like, young girls manipulating them because they wanted to be famous. Like, I mean, it's just the level of control and abuse and totally brazen over decades is absolutely disgusting. I guess my view on this is that um, I think it honestly is, like, a personal decision. So for me, with R. Kelly, I just genuinely don't enjoy the music anymore because I can't really separate. Did you enjoy it before? Somewhat. Okay. I was not a huge fan. Okay. Um, I can't really say because his art is very sexual in nature. Like, I can't personally listen to those songs and feel good about it. Well, some of them are not sexual in nature. True. Yeah. True. Would I like condemn someone else for listening to his songs? No. And the YouTube thing is kind of interesting to me as well because. As you said, they took down his two channels. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They aren't like clearing the whole platform of his content, um, and they say that this is in accordance with their terms of service, according to YouTube's guidelines. And reading from the New York Times, it may shut down the channels of people accused of very serious offenses if they have been convicted of or pleaded guilty to crimes, and if their content is closely related to those crimes. But. They don't apply that consistently. I mean, of course not. Of course not. They're not going through with a fine tooth comb and looking at every individual person and what's your rap sheet and is it related to your content, et cetera. So that's always my issue with these um, major platform decisions is that they seem to be more of one offs. They seem to be more in response to like public pressure than any actual consistent standard or um, consistent application of their terms of service. Okay, yes. So 
there's a lot I want to say about this. Um, I do think, maybe this is too strong, but this is how I feel about what YouTube specifically did. Yeah. It's just such a cheap virtue signal. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's just yeah. so like, <laughs> who, us? Bro, I'm a good person. Our, our, who's our Kelly? Get rid of the channels. Get rid of the channels. Aren't we so great? Pat us on the head and say we're amazing people. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no. You're pretending like this is some slam dunk and an obvious choice and the moral and ethical thing to do. And like you said, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. So let me give the results of my poll because I thought that was very okay. interesting. It was 55% to 45%. So, so that's close. super close. Uh, and the side that edged it out, the 55%, was separate the art from the artist. And so where do I stand on this? I Honestly, I don't know. I'm somewhat agnostic. Uh, depends on what day you catch me. Yeah. But I do lean more in favor of separate the art from the artist. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just as simple as... Um, I just think it would be an absurd claim to tell somebody who still enjoys Michael Jackson's music or still enjoys R. Kelly's music or still enjoys Chris Brown's music or whatever that, oh, you support Rihanna's face getting bashed in or you support, yeah. you know, Michael Jackson doing terrible things to children or R. Kelly having basically sex slaves in his house locked up. Yeah. It's like, no, no, I don't support that. Nobody who listens to the music supports that. So why are we pretending here? Now, but let me also propose something that's a little like a third way, if you will. Okay. What if they kept the channels up and just gave the monetization to the victims? Well, that's a good idea. I like, like that. leave it up. Let R. Kelly have his channels up. Just give the money to the victims. That's good. I like that. That is a good idea, right? So mm -hmm. this time everybody's listening. Because that, that is a caveat where I sort of then I start to lean in the other direction, which is if you are monetarily helping them. Right. And that then helps them continue on their crime spree. In the well, then I'm like, behavior. okay, That's now, different. yes, now I can't do it. Well, what you said, too, is interesting about um, separating the art from the artist and how you feel about that. Because art is, it means one thing to the artist who creates it. And um, the way that you personally experience it is a deeply personal experience. Like right. what you get from the art maybe something totally different than what the artist got from it or what the artist put into it. So you sort of filter it through your own lens and it means something totally different to you. So I agree with you that the idea of like condemning someone and saying, oh, you support like Rihanna being beaten or you support what Michael Jackson did to little boys or you support what R. Kelly did just because you continue to get something from that art um, I think that is ridiculous. So I guess if I had to come down in a hard place, I would say I come down on the side of still okay to listen, but that I it's like an individual thing where if your experience of that art is tainted by what that person has done, yeah, then or if it also crosses that line of you feel like it's benefiting or enabling right, them yeah. too much, then that's a different story too. So Corin, Corin and I discussed this a while ago, and he made an interesting point, and it was in regards to when Ray Rice was caught on camera, mm. domestic abuse, oh, basically beating his wife. It was horrendous. Yeah. What happened is, and Corin and I went to the same school as Ray Rice, and he was a great, oh, really? I think, in front of us. Yeah. Oh, really? So and he even, Corin says he cheated off him for the math test, which is hilarious because Corin's terrible at that. <laughs> but, <laughs> Says a lot, but what <laughs> happened is uh, Nourishell High School, which is where we went. Uh -huh. um, they had he had won all these, you know, these trophies and accolades and titles and everything you can imagine. And when that happened, they pulled that stuff down. And Corn's point was like, he still did that shit, right? Like he still won those things. I get that you you don't want to glorify him, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't just 
erase the reality of it. And if you really stretch this principle to its conclusion, you could get in some really funky and silly places. Like, for example, so I think Gandhi was doing some terrible sex stuff. Like, I think it, it's been proven that he was, I don't know if it was underage people or whatever. Yeah. But a lot of issues there, pedophilia stuff, right? Does that mean that then you turn around and be like, well, the, the other thing he fought for was, you know, I can't be on the side of you with the correct stuff with freeing India. Yeah. Because of that. it's like, well, that's if you're being consistent, you know, you'd have to be like, well, we got to take a couple steps back from associating with him or associating with that I I ideology or philosophy because of the other terrible things he does. People are almost terribly complex, you know, and I, I feel like oftentimes in today's day and age, that nuance is totally lost on people, mm -hmm. you know, where, and I, I wish that nuance was back in the conversation. Now, having said all that, even if you enjoy, still enjoy the music of these people, you should have the common sense to when discussing them, be like, yeah, but fuck them for what they did. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like, go ahead, I'll let you enjoy the MJ and the R. Kelly and all that stuff, but you should be like, if it's brought up, don't be a stan. Don't be like, you know, overly defensive of them. You have to yeah. be like, yeah, fuck them for what they did, but thriller's the shit. I mean, it does remind me a little bit, too, of the debates we have around, like, platforming and, right. you know, yeah. there's a school of thought that says, like, well, you shouldn't even talk to or associate yeah with this person if they have a view that we consider to be over the line and i think that's a really i think that's a silly perspective i think that the fact that you engage with someone and you know have a debate with them or disagree with them but have them on your platform to do so um i don't think that means you're like sanctioning all of their views like I we mean, both talked about russell brand getting totally smeared by the daily beast this week and part of their argument was like well he played to his right-wing audience by having candace owens on he it's debated like, them yeah, the entire he, fucking he time he destroyed candace right. owens when yeah. he had her on it was like yeah. a very vigorous and heated debate and having her on your platform doesn't mean that you agree with every stupid thing that she's said quite the contrary so I do think you get into a similar kind of mentality of like, all right, so now do we have to like every piece of art that we enjoy, do we have to like vet the character and the rap sheet of those that person before we have our own experience of whatever that art is? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. So, I mean, I don't, to your point, and I'll wrap it up on this, but I don't besmirch people who themselves would say, this is not. This is. I can't I'm do done. it anymore. I don't yeah. like it anymore. This is too serious. Or maybe you have some personal experience mm -hmm. in that realm, and so it hits close to home in, in a different kind of way. Yes. Then I totally get it, and and you know credit to you, and it's totally fine. Um, I would just say that for people who still enjoy it, as long as they have the caveat of they're willing to say, hey, fuck them for what they did. Let let people enjoy that stuff because there is. I do think there is literally a separation from the art and the artist. I mean, it's not, it's not the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, with all the nuances of and complexities of people, yeah. you are what you do, but you also do a thousand things. And right. thing number 74 on the list is not the same thing as thing, thing number 180. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm just thinking of another um, potential hypothetical example to help think this problem through. Like, imagine that your wedding song is like, you know, a Michael Jackson song or something like that. More of an R. Kelly one, probably. But okay. yes, take point out. All right, we'll go with an R. Yeah. Kelly song. Is like your your wedding song, and you have this like 
you have a personal experience with the song. This song is important to you. It evokes memories of that day, and it's incredibly special. Like, why should R. Kelly, having done a bunch of fucked up shit, why should that ruin your association with that song and the fact that it's special to you in that through that personal lens? Having said all that, Bill Cosby was never fucking funny. <laughs> He was never funny. His stand-up is buns. The Cosby show a, was uh, ridiculous. Do you have a Cosby impression? Zip, zop, zoop, and a bop, the jello pudding pop. The kids listen to the rap music. The only other thing I wanted to mention on the R. Kelly thing, because I thought this was interesting, is my daughter is 13. My oldest one, she's uh, her name's Ella. And we were talking about some of this stuff, because I talked to Ella about everything. And uh, she's like, but was R. Kelly even that big? I was like, yes. <laughs> and it made me realize, though, in her, like, you know, budding adult consciousness, she's, you know, young teenager, she, these songs aren't played anymore. So she had no idea. And she's into music. Like, she had no idea that he was as big of a phenomenon as he was. You're pushing me further to the side of let people listen to the music. <laughs> because if she, they don't play them anymore. She never heard, she didn't hear R. Kelly songs. It's like, what? Yeah, really. I mean, I don't want to say not at all, but she was like, yeah, but he was never really a big deal, right? And I was like, he was huge. <laughs> He's gigantic. We are so old. <laughs> it's funny too, because people's perspectives vary so greatly. It's amazing. Like there are people who would meet us and think like we're the most famous people on the planet because they really like our stuff and they watch all of our stuff. But it's like, no, not really. We're not on A, B, or C list celebrity. Maybe D? Right. Like, you know? <laughs> on a good but day. It's all about perspective. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, I'm going to go play some R. Kelly for your daughter. Okay. So, <laughs> all that being taken, <laughs> Ellie, you will listen to this. Um, all right. So, we are both very excited to talk to Jeff Stein. As Kyle already said, he is an economics reporter for the Washington Post. If you follow anyone on Twitter, you should be following Jeff Stein because he does a phenomenal job of making things super easy. He's really well-sourced. He does a great job. He focuses oftentimes on stories or angles of economic issues that are getting undercovered by other reporters in Washington, D.C. Let's bring in Jeff. Jeff Stein, great to see you, friend. Thanks for having me back. Our pleasure. Um, so first, I actually want to start a little bit with the debt ceiling because that's kind of the latest, latest in D.C. I did <sighs> not see the deal from McConnell, at least the kicking the can down the road, willingness from McConnell coming. Was that something that you expected? I, I didn't see it coming. And I think the initial reaction that this was like a giant fold by McConnell um, was kind of wishful thinking on Democrats' part. Mm. It actually seems to tee up an absolute nightmare of a November and December. Um, not that anyone should bemoan the plight of DC reporters, but it's going to be an absolute. <laughs> I care about you, John. <laughs> Thank you for some of this. Um, someone described it to me today, which I thought was clever, as sort of um, a gentle nudge of the can, not even a kicking of the can. Basically, McConnell agreed to lift the debt ceiling. Um, the deal is just being worked out right now as we're recording. Um, for a couple weeks, essentially, maybe a couple months. And that will mean that Democrats uh, have less time to negotiate and hash out their economic package. It throws a wrench in the entire uh, apparatus of that, which mm. is McConnell's intention. He's trying to make it as hard for Democrats as possible to pass Biden's economic agenda. Why and, does it throw a wrench into that? Just explain that piece. Well, procedurally, it takes... Um, you know, a lot of the, the Senate clock, you know, up to a week for Democrats to approve the debt ceiling hike through reconciliation. And that 
is not even counting the amount of time that they have to spend negotiating it, figuring out what the number is going to be, reporting it out of committee. And so what McConnell is, is so boring, the Senate procedure just like makes me want to gouge my eyes out with like a rusty hammer or something. It's, it's, it's so boring. And I hate explaining it and talking about it. But the way it works is essentially the debt ceiling is traditionally raised or suspended through regular order, which is a very fast process when all senators, basically more than 60, agree to do something, they do it quickly. What McConnell has been doing and has the support of all Republicans in saying is, you guys will have to do this with Democratic votes alone through the reconciliation process. And that, because it's sort of outside the Senate's normal procedure, takes a lot of time, takes weeks. Right, yeah. And so Bernie Sanders has been adamant, we're not doing it that way. And so with a deal that was announced this week was essentially, we will kick that vote. We will Basically, McConnell is saying, I will agree to give you guys more time to have to do this on your own. But that concession or that decision basically means that Democrats are going to have to continue to work on this in the next couple months when they sh should be or in theory be working on the actual economic agenda that people want to change the country. Now, I think that that um, people say, why don't Democrats just do this on their own? And the core thing that people need to understand is that the reason Democrats haven't done this on their own is because they are nervous about an attack ad saying, you raise the debt ceiling to $35 trillion. They yeah. don't want that attack ad, and they don't trust that the American people are smart enough to understand the explanation of, we are doing this because we have to to avoid a default, and in actuality, $28 trillion of the $35 trillion was accrued under prior administrations. They don't think that they can have that conversation and win voters over. So this is the game that we have to play, and it's not fun to cover. And does, correct me if I'm wrong, but doesn't it also take another crack at reconciliation off the table for Democrats? And how many cracks do you get per year? Three? You get three shots of reconciliation per year or something like that? Well, wasn't there a parliamentarian ruling that there may be an ability to do more than was originally thought? <sighs> yeah, this is... I um... know. <laughs> <laughs> but if McConnell says you have to do that through reconciliation and you waste a reconciliation thing through this... No, th that's a really good question and something that I was trying to track. And the parliamentarian came out to Punchbowl, I think, first and said... Essentially, you guys can do this mm -hmm. through reconciliation without burning one of your reconciliation packages. So, so it, it should not prevent them from doing a full Biden spending plan this year. It's not, it really doesn't burn one off the clock. So the reason for the, the nuclear option, the 51 votes, the Democrats aren't doing that for the reason you described, which is they're afraid of the attack ads? Like, so in other words, Biden, they could just do it and do it with 51 votes and just get around it, but... They're only afraid of the attack. That's the only reason why they're not doing it is because they're afraid of the attack ads. Yeah, they could have done this months months <laughs> That's ago. So sad. That's the saddest thing I've ever and heard. It's one of those things as a as a reporter where you're trying to be, you know, as as fair and objective and as, you know, judicious as possible. Sure. And you're seeing, you know, the positions here are McConnell saying, I'm gonna risk a default right, exactly. of, of the US government, which would be catastrophic to the global economy because he wants Democrats to get this, you know, potentially bad talking point, you know, that this thing that this thing that Demo that Republicans can attack Democrats with. So that certainly doesn't seem like a great motivation to put it lightly. Democrats are also themselves potentially risking the full faith and credit of the US because they don't want to receive this political attack and to be victims of it. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, you write a story that says that both sides are acting like children and, and you get a torrent of 
emails and calls and tweets from Democrats saying they're the ones putting us in this position. And that's true. It is true that McConnell is playing is really initiating this game. That's not just cooperating on a bipartisan basis to raise it. But at the same time, Democrats, and this is what Republicans say somewhat ironically, that Democrats are the party of good governance. So why don't you guys just do it? Right. Um, it is ironic to hear Republicans calling you and saying, I thought they were the ones who were responsible. Talk about the trillion dollar coin, too, because some people say it works, it's a good idea, and other people say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, you guys should have Joe Weisenthal on to talk about about the coin. Um, we reported that the White House does have an internal memo that evaluates the coin question. I have not obtained the memo, but oh, if you're a White House staff for listening to this, you can find me on Signal. Um, <laughs> They're probably scared of the attack of that too, though, right? Probably, you guess? Yeah, In fact, even right. more so than if you just raise the debt this, the limit with 51 votes. Yeah, also, if you have the coin, you can send it to, to us. For <laughs> um, I'm going to go buy a sandwich with a trillion dollar coin. Do you have change for this? <laughs> um, I, I think the coin... You know, they, they have to say publicly that it's off the table because as soon as they even acknowledge that it was being considered, it would be a sign of the dysfunction of the U.S. government mm. to pay its debts. And you don't know what how investors are going to react. And obviously, you know, every month, Treasury has to essentially put U.S. debt up for auction. That's how we fund our obligations. And if those borrowing costs go up, it mm -hmm. would be really I see. catastrophic. And so the psychological game behind the coin and the fact that it sounds like such a gimmick, some people say could undermine the whole idea of it. That said, if we get to the point where like we're actually looking at a default, the idea that we would pick a default over this potentially gimmicky option that would, at least according to its proponents, you know, take this potential catastrophe off the table, I think is is worth noting. I mean, the thing with, with the coin that I think you know, some of the people I've talked to close to the situation will say is that the coin, it sounds so goofy, you know, like yeah. to the average I mean, John person. Stewart went after it years ago. Oh, it was I being missed considered. That. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, years ago. Either. He did a thing and it was, he was ripping it ruthlessly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, there's some weird partisan stuff going on with it where it's not like you would assume, well, lefties will support it and right wingers will be against it, but it's all over the place. Yeah. And the thing is they might not even need it. The, the thing that's going on and one of them, I think sort of like less, crazy sounding legal theories is that Congress is, the problem is that Congress is saying you can't borrow more than this in one law. And then in separate laws, Congress is saying you have to spend and tax amount. this amount. So right. th those laws are in conflict. And in the past, I mean, FDR did this a number of times. Best president in, ever. In continue. a baller way. <laughs> or in an aggressive way. I shouldn't say baller. Um, <laughs> FDR is baller. That is correct. I'll say it. <laughs> it. It was quite a bold move um, where he just said, look, these two laws are in conflict and I'm going to pick the one that does the <laughs> That I harm. like. I love that guy. Bring it that, to perfect. me, that sounds a lot less wild and wacky than being like, we'll do this trillion dollar coin that like, I agree. You, you find the average person on the street, like, what are they going to say to that? They're going to say that that yeah. sounds weird. If you say, oh, under the 14th Amendment, we have additional slight legal justification for this. It seems like a, an easier sell potentially. Yeah, right? that's yeah. an interesting point. I mean, I've been on team hashtag meant the coin because the debt ceiling as itself is a sort of stupid historical relic it, yeah. that other countries don't have. Um, the coin is a sort of equally silly solution, certainly. But as you were alluding to, and I think Weisenthal put this well on Twitter, he's like, look, you got Janet Yellen and others saying this is a meteor headed 
to crash into our economy. Like the results are incredibly real, even as silly as the discussion seems. You're talking about potentially six million jobs lost, stock market in free fall, social security payments not going, our servicemen and women not getting paid. I mean, it's it's a hugely potentially catastrophic event. And so if you have the means to fix it and you're going to take that off the table, that seems like an absurd place to be in. And it also reminds me, frankly, of them saying that climate change is a real threat and that we're in crisis and that this is existential. But hey, if the parliamentarian says we can't do anything about it, yeah, we'll just let Joe Manchin, the coal baron, write the rules for what we're going to do about it ultimately. It doesn't seem like the rhetoric matches their willingness to use the tools at their disposal is what I'm trying to say. Mm. It's interesting because yesterday Yellen was um, at an event with, I don't know if you guys saw this, but the White House called in the CEOs of J.P. Morgan, City, Raytheon. Raytheon. The people, so mm-hmm. the people who really run the country. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> Those people were called in to address the debt limit situation, and Yellen said, which I think she she means genuinely, you know, I would rather be dealing with real problems like climate change. And it's it was ironic to me because I had just written a story about what Treasury is not doing. To address well, climate right. change. Right. Um, so Yellen read your article. Nice humble book. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wanted to ask you about the CEOs coming to town because a lot of the analysis, which I think may be correct, is that part of why McConnell was like, okay, fine, you can have a little more time, but you're still doing this on your own, was because of a relatively credible uh, threat of filibuster reform. And reportedly, he talked to Manchin and Cinema, who, of course, been the key obstacles to any sort of filibuster reform. So the reading of the tea leaves was he got some indication from them that this might be a real path. They might actually nuke the filibuster on that one thing. And then what does that open the door to? But I also noted that Wall Street and corporate executives seem to start taking the debt ceiling seriously, like, hey, this is actually a crisis and this is actually a problem. And then McConnell's move to act. Do you think that those things are connected? Maybe. I, I think that's possible, although it's interesting the extent to which Republicans are taking their cues for corporate America have, is really not the same as it used to be. Mm. Like the lobbyist sway on because the grassroots has just become so powerful and there's been all these antagonisms between corporate America uh, and the GOP, although obviously ideologically they are um, in line. I mean, I, I still think that what this is primarily about is trying to make the reconciliation package as as difficult as possible. And Manchin had at least publicly ruled out using the filibuster to nuke this. One of the strangest things about this whole thing is that it's not as if McConnell has been saying we should risk a default. McConnell has been adamant that like a default would be really bad. And that's the strange thing about the negotiations mm. is that both sides actually agree on the outcome. They just want the other side to deal with it. Uh, normally, I think in Washington, these standoffs are about we don't want to do X, not we both agree that X would destroy would the country, but yeah. you take care of it. Um, but I don't know. We're going to have to see like what, what what comes of this play by McConnell. I think I think it's less about I mean, my first reaction was similar to you that he might be getting scared of the filibuster. He might be worried about corporate America freaking out about this. That was my first reaction. And in the day since then, I've sort of shifted to think that this is more about just trying to basically, I mean, one other way to look at this is that this gives Manchin and Cinema huge leverage. If the reconciliation package gets tied to the debt limit increase, whatever they say, right, has to stick because they can't afford to kick this further if it means that the default is not going to get taken care of. So 
obviously that negotiation is proceeding, but if Manchin says, I'm not voting for the debt limit for this whole thing, unless you bring it down to 1.5 trillion, and the White House says, look, this is the alternative to a yeah, default. Yeah, come on, Bernie, come on, AOC, get Wait, in line. Wait, but alternatively, can't Biden put it in the $3.5 trillion package and say, I'll blow the whole thing up if you don't do it? That would yeah, be gangster. But it's his presidency, though. I mean, he's not going to do that. I know, because he's not FDR, <laughs> but FDR would have been like, so I put it in the $3.5 trillion package. Your move, son. You know? It would be interesting to see, you know, how that would play. I mean, the obvious downside risk would be, you know, all the economic progress we've been seeing would evaporate overnight, and the stakes would be really high to, to that kind of move. So now let's get to reconciliation, because I've been going back and forth with Ken Klippenstein on this recently. Um, so Shout he, out to Ken. Shout out to mm-hmm. Ken. His comment to me was, the entire thing from both Mansion and Cinema is a complete and utter bluff. So they're saying, no, I'm not, I'm not for the $3.5 trillion package. I'm not even going to tell you what I'm going to cut. I'm not going to tell you a top-line number. I'm just going to say nothing, and then you're going to negotiate with yourself. But ultimately, in his view, they would vote for the $3.5 trillion package if it came down to that or nothing. Now, my view is a little bit different. I think they want the traditional infrastructure bill, whatever it is, $1 trillion, $1.5 trillion, whatever it is. Um, and I do think they'd nuke the $3.5 trillion, and I think they have no interest in the $3.5 trillion. Um, so... Where, where do you fall on that? Do you think that they would vote for the $3.5 trillion if it really came down to that? Or does it have to come down? And if so, how much? Because I, I always said $2 trillion is the absolute floor, and that would, that would get my vote, depending on the provisions. I don't want any means testing. I don't want to strip all the climate stuff. But what you do you think about You want to strip all that? the climate stuff? No, I said I don't want to strip. Oh, like, oh, yeah. I agree that with the line, sense. no climate, no deal. And yeah. I agree with the idea, no means testing, no deal. So you brought this up to me, and this is actually something AOC floated too. If you want to change the window from 10 year to five years, but keep the programs in there, maybe take out one or two programs, but change it from 10 years to a five year window. I'm totally for that. I'm Mm. fine. Uh, But then you run the risk of maybe you lose six or 10 house progressives, you know, so it's all so volatile. But what's your take on on Ken Klippenstein's point that it's a total bluff from Mansion and Cinema? Do you agree with that? Uh, I think. Ken is, as usual, incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) I called him that. I said, I'm not buying it. I think they're actually against it. Um, No, I I actually do think that they would vote it down in its current form. Agreed. Um, That's what I think. Cinema, from everything I've gathered, I mean, they they are different in what they want and what they're upset about. Cinema seems most concerned and adamant that the taxes on... Um, wealthy investors and corporate America come down substantially. That seems to be her main concern. Cool. Manchin seems mostly concerned about the extent of spending on families. We're also, you know, the climate stuff is interesting because they could keep the number where it is Mm. and change some of the sort of internal mechanics in a way that a lot of climate experts are very worried about. For instance, the main climate provision in the bill, or one of the two biggest, is this change to how utility utilities are reimbursed. You guys know about this, you know? Yeah. So it's basically an incentive system, 4% payments to utility companies as they transition out. That money is a lot, of, it could be a big part of the bill and could be a high top line number, but if it doesn't include penalties for utilities that fail to convert, which is something that we're hearing is on the table, that could really sort of block the amount of climate mitigation that's in there. Mm. And also we're hearing that there's a push to have a financial reward for utilities that convert from coal to natural gas. 
which would not necessarily be the cleanest way to do it. Yeah. Um, Manchin's main concerns seem to be about the social spending side. Um, you know, a lot of people have been very frustrated that he sort of has just been saying, I want, you know, the number to come down. And AOC had, a, I think, a smart piece about this, and I actually wrote about some of this over the weekend, where it's very easy to say we want $2 trillion cut from the package. Right. It's much harder to identify what part of Biden's plan do you think should yeah. be left out. Climate, housing, health care. So this morning we got news on that. Did you see this? Axios is reporting that he's he's doing the thing from, I forget the name of the movie, that horror movie, where it's like, I want to play a game. It's like... Saw. Saw. That's it. That's what I'm thinking of. Uh, <laughs> so Joe Manchin is telling colleagues that progressives need to pick just one of President Biden's three signature policies for helping working families and discard the other two. People familiar with the matter tell Axios... Um, by forcing progressives to choose among an expanded child tax credit, paid family, medical leave, or subsidies for child care. So he's saying you can only have one of those. So this is the first time he's actually saying, like, okay, yeah, I want to cut these phenomenally popular programs. But, I mean, how, how could you just say that? <laughs> I mean, that's something that, like, he has to know that the polls are massively against him. And it's not like in West Virginia. This is the thing that drives me crazy is the media usually says, like, oh, he's a West Virginia Democrat, which is why he has to do these things. But if you look at the polls in West Virginia, they supported the $15 minimum wage. You know, they support all these things. Yes, that is true. And I've made I, that's a point that I've definitely made, because if you look at the polling, I mean, all of these programs would disproportionately benefit the state of West Virginia and are popular in the state of West Virginia. However, um, because this debate has been framed much more as you were saying, like, oh, is it three and a half trillion or is it 1.5 right. or is it two? And we're not really talking about the programs. Then the overall impression to his constituents Ooh, is just like yeah. Manchin's standing up to the Democrats and their big spending rather than Manchin sta standing in the way of paid family leave, which right. is something that like 80 percent of people support, I think, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I guess this is a little un way unrelated, but the. Democratic conversation around 3.5 versus 1.5 versus 2.5. I've talked to pollsters, Democratic pollsters, pollsters that Biden, you know, talk, that the White House talks to, and they say, like, look, voters don't know the difference between 2.6 and 3.8. Like, what is that? Yeah. Mean Why does it doesn't matter? Yeah. It almost reminded me of when this is where I was going to go. That's very unrelated. That the Obamas had their party over the summer. And there were all these COVID concerns. And they were like, we'll cut the size of the party from 600 to 300. Uh -huh. Right. <laughs> like, oh, now we're going to lay off you. All right. Good point. <laughs> yeah. But this, uh, on, a, on a wonky note about the mansion demand, which I, I'm guessing is right, but I haven't been able to confirm myself. The interesting thing about that, and just to get into like Senate procedure a little bit, the way the um, reconciliation package that they're using to pass this works is each committee gets a certain amount of money. And if the committee that that program is assigned to is also raising money in the years beyond the 10-year budget window, they can make those programs permanent. And it just so happens that all three of these programs, paid leave, the child tax credit, and child care, are at least two of the three, I'm not sure about child care, but two of the three run through the Senate Finance Committee, which is also responsible for the tax hikes, which means that this is a long-winded way, way of saying, these are the programs that Democrats, if they wanted to actually do, could not just do for a few years, but make permanent and not mess up their budget math. So this is, I think, very frustrating to a lot of people who are looking at this and saying, this is potentially the best bang for our buck. This is where we can actually do something that lasts after, you know, for 
you know, indefinitely, make this a permanent program. And Manchin saying we need to kill two of these three things that could escape that, that window is particularly potentially devastating. And these are going to be really, really hard decisions. Um, I, I personally think that there's no way they can back off the kid credit at this point now that it exists. But Manchin has been talking about means testing it at $50,000 per family, um, which will run into all kinds of administrative problems because, not to keep talking, but the, the, there are these safe harbor rules, basically, that if you make more money than you did in the prior year, you are exempted from having to pay that money back. Mm. But if they bring down the threshold from 125 to 50K, a lot of people who made less money the prior year but make more are going to start owing money back to the IRS. So if they bring that number down, tons of middle-class families are going to have to get a oh tax bill from oh. the Democratic administration saying you owe all of the child tax credit money back that we gave you over these months, which would be an absolute oh nightmare. God. That exists a little bit but would be far worse that problem under the ctc wow. i'm becoming radicalized as uh, more he talks yeah well i mean i think what your comment there um laying out the actual practical implications underscores is that you know sometimes these are framed as like oh mansion and center are ma making these political choices to represent their diverse constituencies as how michael smirconish on cnn put it but like that's a political forget about the morality or what your view of the policy is that is a political disaster so the idea that he's doing this because it's so like politically smart for him or for the party is kind of ultimately absurd. But Jeff, there was actually, there was uh, one tweet you sent out that was in particular uh -oh. the reason why I wanted to have you on to break this down is you've been laying out what are those potential trade-offs? Like, okay, if we're gonna say oh, three and a half or 1.5 or whatever, like what are the actual numbers behind that? What is some of the thinking about balancing, okay, do we fully fund these programs or do we do a uh, limited time frame? Do we means test? The only path to me is the limiting, shortening the window. What are those, but what do those trade-offs look like? And so if we end up, let's say, I mean, right now, if you had to guess, you'd end up, it did, you would guess it would end up somewhere ballpark like $2 trillion. What does a $2 trillion bill actually potentially look like? So, yeah, you... Try to like do the basic arithmetic, uh, this yourself. And I, someone on Twitter was accusing me and some other people of doing what they were calling like fantasy budget math, like kind of like coming up with your fantasy team and like mm -hmm. put, you know, we have a cap and we buy this player for right. this amount. And yeah. So I don't want to sound like I'm doing that because I, I, you know, but this is the reality that they're looking at. You know, you're taking a bill that is. Really, they, they said 3.5, but the House bill was like four and a half, probably maybe close to five. And to bring that down to two, they're going to have to cut it by more than a half. Mm. The 60% cut to Biden's initial plans. Wow. Which didn't include the Medicare vision dental expansion, for instance. Wow. Um, so to get down to two, right, let's say the climate number is 0.7, you know, 700 billion. The child tax credit, not even in full, but through 2025 is 500 billion. So now you're at 1.3. You're already at 1.3. Yeah. Already. Yeah. So then you do Pelosi's, I'm just picking things out of a hat, but, but the healthcare plans are close to 750 billion. So that's the like Medicaid expanding the Medicaid, Medicaid, ACA. Medicare and ACA. Yeah. All three, which would be a big deal. But so if you pick those three, then you're leaving out everything they want to do on housing, everything they want to do on pre-K, Child elder care, care paid family, elder college. care, community college, right? All the education oh. stuff is all oh, gone. God. And 
So the debate has been, okay, what we don't want to do is cut everything to the bone and have basically like a large appropriations bill where we just, and this is what a lot of people in the White House have told me, that they don't want to have what they would call like a souped up normal appropriations bill. Like Trump did a version of that where you just give like a little bit more money to everything. Mm. And then in a few years, like, you don't look on the street and say Biden did that, right? Right, like yeah. that's the that's kind of the danger. So there's this, I think a lot of some you know people in the White House have said what we want to do is like a few things very big and bold so they like see that you know mm. maybe pick five things and like really kill those. Right. Like make sure that every senior gets dental benefits next year before the midterms. Like that's a pretty good political win. Yep. Million, you know, forty million seniors don't have like access to adequate dental care. So on the policy, it's Crime. it's uh, it's they see it as an important step forward. But the problem with just picking a few things and doing them well, you're leaving out. Yeah. not it's who you leave out, but also that you need the votes of every Democrat and every Democrat has their issue. Right. Maxine right. Waters is yeah. like, I am not supporting something that I mean, she hasn't said this, but she's very adamant that the housing money get in there. Bob Casey of Pennsylvania has been very adamant that money for seniors for elder care gets right. in there. Yeah. Sanders is not going to vote for something without Medicare benefits expansion. So you look at the at the legislative math of putting this together and you say on paper narrowing this down to a few priorities and doing them in a way that voters recognize makes sense but the legislative reality is that maybe we do just have to cut everything and do a little bit of of something so let me ask you this that was all very incisive and it's important that everybody hears that thank you what's your sense of how biden negotiates because we you brought up fdr earlier you know, I think of like LBJ, for example, and the stories of him are endless. And, you know, it's not like there's not dirt on Manchin and Cinema. So, for example, with Manchin, we know his daughter with the pharmaceutical company and the EpiPen scandal and all these things going on. If I'm Joe Biden, I mean, look, it's terrible to say, it's impolite, but, you know, you play the mafia boss game and you call Manchin into your office and you say, look, I got a character stick approach here. I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. If you vote for the $3.5 trillion package, we're going to get another military base in West Virginia. We're going to give you more money for X, Y, and Z. If you don't vote for it, maybe my buddy Merrick Garland takes a look at your daughter and takes a look at your family because there's also stuff apparently going on with his wife. His wife was involved in the scandal as well. And he got $5 million in, in fossil fuel money. That's the Intercept article, Joe Manchin's Dirty Empire. What's your sense of how Biden operates? Because from everything... Uh, other than what Fashikir said, Bernie's campaign manager, he seems to think Biden actually is, you know, doing a tough bargain behind closed doors. Um, is he doing that or is he just classic like what we see on camera where he's half asleep and he's like, I really like you to vote for this. But if you don't. All right. <laughs> there, there was some reporting in the uh, in the new Woodward uh, Costa book that during the stimulus debate. Um, can I swear? I don't know. Of course. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll show you can. <laughs> um, that Biden really lay into Man Manchin during the stimulus talks and said, if you don't vote for this, you're fucking me. And I, I don't, I don't know. I can't weigh into the question of like whether he should do the mafia. What's your sense of how he negotiates is the question. Do you get a sense he's more on that end of the spectrum? I think he's trying to be a consensus builder that's and what not I think too, right? jam things down people throat, people's throats. But see, that, but that was Obama's flaw. See, that's the thing that drives me crazy. He said, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that the Obama made, and then now he's making the exact same mistakes. Well, I did want to ask you, like, I have this theory of Joe Biden, and it's basically that, that he wants to outdo Obama, right? Obama, the, the reporting from Politico was... The Obama people kind of looked down on him, 
you know? And he's got a bit of a chip on his shoulder about that. They had the fancy degrees and whatever. He went to some random university. wasn't that great of a student. Is this kind of old school relationship-based politician where they were all the super intellectuals? And so there's this motivation to outdo Obama. Okay, Obama's stimulus was too small. I'm going to do a bigger one. He did that. Okay, Obama was never able to get Republicans to agree to anything. I'm going to get this bipartisan deal done, and he's you know halfway there on that one. But what do you see as driving his motivations? Because in terms of, certainly in ter- terms of laying out actual concrete policy priorities to the American public, like, you know, we're having this debate about what you're going to, what they're ultimately going to include in the reconciliation bill. I have no clue what Biden's, I know what Bernie's, what you laid out, what right. Bob Casey's are, what Maxine Waters are. I don't know what Joe Biden, the president of the United States, what his actual policy priorities would ultimately be. I think that's the, the big question about the consensus building approach. I mean, maybe you get more done, but if voters don't know what build back better means in a concrete sense, Terrible it sounds <laughs> or, it's so Boris, bad. It's Boris Johnson's too right uh... now. I didn't know that until yesterday. <laughs> yeah, Johnson took it, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah, the, the Tories are using build back better. Oh, it's so bad. The conservatives in the UK are using the Democrats, tech, which says a they're, lot. They're on proud its own. of that. The, not, I don't know about the Tories in particular, but the White House. Biden has said, you know, you see that they're using it all over the world now. Oh, <laughs> he thinks it's like transformational. <laughs> but all of us were like, <laughs> I think, you know, in terms of Biden's personal priorities, I think he's very invested in um, community uh, tuition free community colleges. Everything I understand is that he really sees the ability for, you know, whether this is antiquated or not, but he really sees the ability for blue collar workers to get two-year instruction for a degree that they can use for, you know, blue-collar work as very important. I think his elevation of the long-term care component of his plan has been really interesting, and I have some reporting that, you know, there were some um, basically like low-wage service workers who do that kind of, um, you know, that is, I think, one of the most like neglected policy areas for all we talk about health care and housing and many other important issues. The crisis where people who are in their 80s and 90s cannot get in-home care, yes. that it's not covered at all, yeah. sort of like flown below the radar. And it's like hasn't become a flashpoint in any primary. But and a lot of people would say that what Biden has advanced is wholly inadequate to not just the current moment, but the fact that we are about to experience a massive boom in our elderly population as the mm. baby boomers retire. That I, my sense is that he has, he's really fi- fixated on, on those are two of the things that he's most wedded to and eager to ensure get through. But whether those are alone adequate to, you know, win votes or keep the house and Senate. I mean, the, the polling, um, for Democrats looks awful. I don't know if you guys saw the, oh, yes. oh yes, I did. That Quinnipiac um, poll. Oof. So one thing, were you going to say that there were a couple of service workers who work in long term care? Yeah. And, and that that talked to him during the campaign and basically said, like, please do not forget us. And a few weeks later, the campaign actually came out with a this plan, that's, plan. that's now hope, you know, potentially going to get through. Yeah, because this is an area that you're absolutely right. I mean, not only is uh, it a problem for the people who are receiving care, but the workers, I mean, they're paid such low wages. 
they were not even subject to the minimum wage laws until under Obama. It's Correct. only very recently that they're even required to earn the minimum wage, disproportionately black and brown, disproportionately women. And some of the most difficult, emotional, like physically draining work that you can possibly imagine and totally unrewarded. And um, yeah, it's a major, major issue in society and absolutely gets overlooked. There were stories during the pandemic of basically when the crisis hit, a lot of states essentially furloughed. You know, they were looking at huge budget cuts and they furloughed a lot of these workers. And without pay, a lot of them went, you know, these are often disabled people who cannot move right. at all physically, right. uh, not just the elderly. And they, you know, there's story after story of these workers going you know, to care for people that they were not being paid, paid to, care. to care for. So wow. um, we'll definitely be watching closely to see if they cut that back. So um, to your point on the polling, do Democrats, you, do you get a sense that Democrats know how screwed they are? <laughs> Seriously. Because it, they, it's you, amazing. You know, a lot of Democrats you talk to are like, well, this is what we get for pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, uh, I imagine you guys don't agree with <laughs> Oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Because even even the polls show that even with all the mess, people were like, "Well, it's good we're out." Yeah. I think the the you know from the White House's perspective, the best case scenario is that the signs we're seeing about Delta receding, you know, some good news on that front. Oh, so they're after just months of horror. But that's it, copium. That's it, copium. Yeah, the hopium to to inhale right now for Democrats is Delta recedes, the economy comes back in the winter and spring but how many times have i been in the studio talking to you guys just being like the hope is that so okay let's say best case scenario for democrats and by the way they didn't do any you know uh voting rights reform election reform anything like that Yeah, so this they, is the agenda so they point. need to win by like seven points eight points in order to to even like Hang hold on, on to, to the numbers they have which is just absolutely psychotic um let's say they pass some let, let's be kind and say $2.3 trillion reconciliation bill with a bunch of wonderful stuff in there. Uh, even then, they could still sort of get wiped out. Is there any path is for like a Hail Mary? One of the things that you mentioned to me a number of times, which I've talked about on my show quite a bit, is what if there was just one more round of stimulus checks? What if old <laughs> Joe, you know, broke out the whooping stick and got that through reconciliation and just like, here, $2,000 checks one last time? It's still very popular. I mean, fourth fourth stimulus check is still one of the top, top Google, Google searches, searches, right? I hope you guys, that's how you title this uh, this podcast appearance. Uh, Joe bo broke out the whooping stick? Just, no, just like <laughs> fourth stimulus check question mark. Yeah. <laughs> that would be like your most. Eight million views. <laughs> we, may, we may do that. Anyway, go ahead. Um, no, I, I don't know. I mean, the the one of the important things to keep an eye on here is that we have seen such problems with implementing the rescue plan, mm. you know, like the housing, you know, I was on here oh, to talk about thing. that. And if, depending on how they structure some of these programs, especially if they're only three years, by the time they're up and running, they could be looking at their expiration pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. And House Democrats, I, I think in terms of like, you know, as, as far as I can tell, a stimulus check is not at all on the table of Congress. That would be too intelligent for them to do something like that. Mm -hmm. But I think the closest analog that they're looking at, aside from the child tax credit, you know, is this Medicare uh, expansion that Sanders is pushing for. We've reported that the White House is looking at essentially, they, they've been told by the bureaucrats at CMS that it could take five to three years to actually get seniors into right. Medicare right. dental 
benefits. So there's talk now of sending every senior in a $1,000 voucher that they can go use for their dental vision or hearing benefits. That's a Ryan idea, vouchers. I don't like that stuff. But it's also kind of like the stimulus check, right? It's like a $1,000 benefit. And the idea when at least Paul is Ryan that... does it, it's instead of getting health care, I'm going to send you 500 bucks. Right, that's true. This is, you're yeah, yeah, still yeah. getting Medicare, and until we get the program operational, here's a stopgap right. to, fill, yeah. in the, to yeah. fill in the holes effectively. Yeah, although Kyle kind of has a point in the, in the sense that, like, the stimulus checks, which obviously have been celebrated by the left and, and lots of economists, you know, there is a way in which they are kind of a libertarian-ish idea. True. No, and they the are. lesson from COVID is kind of that the government programs, maybe it's because they've been underfunded for so long, maybe because, you know, the federal government has been made a mess for mm-hmm. too long. But the programs that got to people most quickly that? were kind of like a tax cut. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's how, by the way, that's how I sell it to my conservative friends. So Kyle, well, think I mean, of it like it a is, tax cut. Yeah. Well, it is like... Look, the unemployment insurance system was a mess, right? You had people who never received benefits that they should have been entitled to. Um, certainly the housing That's the worst. money That's the was, worst. I mean, that whole thing was a complete debacle. Still is. The one thing that at this point, after decades of having funding and competency stripped from the federal government, the one thing they could do was to, like, send people checks. And even yeah. that, I mean, they didn't reach everybody. But yeah. that was the most effective thing that ultimately came out of the pandemic, which is both hopeful and sort of depressing, as you're pointing out. Um, you know, I wanted to to zoom out here a little bit because also in that Quinnipiac poll that we're talking about where Biden's approval rating was 38%. That's a Trump number. Trump level. Yeah. It's one poll. It's a little bit of an outlier, but definitely not a good sign. You had about 75% of Americans saying that things were not going well in the country. And at the same time, I just saw some new, like, jobless claims dropped a bunch and the unemployment rate is falling and, you know, all like all the top line economic numbers. Wages are actually increasing. Goldman Sachs is freaking out because working class people got like a 6% raise in the third quarter. Um, so what do you think is the... Why is there oftentimes a huge disparity between the top line economic numbers that we track and we tout and we celebrate and the sense that people have of how their actual lives day to day are going? Mm. I have an answer to that when you're done, Jeff. (laughs) Tough question, so maybe I'll let you take it. I mean, I think my colleagues had a really good story today about just how uneven the recovery has been. While it is true that a lot of the COVID aid programs were directed towards the poor, the extent to which the jobs hole we're in is really a phenomenon of people without college degrees is shocking. Mm. By May, we have the college-educated workforce had recovered all of the jobs lost during the course of the pandemic already. So all of the job, the job hole we're in right now is really people at the bottom. And I have not done as much digging on this as I should be, but you are really seeing a lot of bidding up in, in wages for people with, you know, who have means and who have been able to get college degrees, but the job market is still really bad for, I mean, there are a lot of job openings, but, but often without pay and often disconnected from where people are and often jobs that people, you know, I mean, we talked about this before, but I think people, a lot of people went through COVID and this existential threat to the country and themselves in many cases and said, I'm done 
doing 12-hour days for a terrible boss and are unwilling to accept the norm from before as what their lives are going to be like from now on. So I don't know if that answers the question. I would love to hear Kyle try to unfold well, this. Well, a couple things. So first of all, the, the, t the way, and Yang has actually pointed this out to his credit, the way that we talk about the economy is not really reflective of how society is doing in a broader sense. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so, I mean, that's one issue right there. The other thing is Democrats seem to not ever really sell themselves or their accomplishments even when they do things every now and then rarely but every now and then they're occasionally good mm -hmm. you know what i mean like the thing that i always talked about on my show was uh i think one of the best things biden did was he signed an executive order to raise the minimum wage for federal government workers to 15 dollars an hour and that includes federal workers federal contractors and also i didn't even know they were tipped government workers but apparently there are tipped government workers mm. so uh, he did that but you never heard you never heard him say anything about it you know so yeah. i, I would have pointed that out i would have uh, pointed out over and over that I did the $1,400 stimulus checks. I mean, for all of Trump's flaws, that was one of the things that he would, he would love to get in front of a crowd and be like, I'm amazing, I'm tremendous, here's a list of the things I did that are so wonderful, don't you love me? Like, and, and not only did the Democrats not do that, but then they also, and of course the media is guilty of this as well, when talking about um, this reconciliation bill, to your point, it's always top line number, top line number, top line number, top line number. Yeah. It's very rarely... I'm going to get you child care and I'm going to get you elder care and I'm going to get you universal pre-K. And, and if you if you do that, I do think you move the needle more in your direction, you know, so they don't do it. There's also just a general existential dread that we're a society in decline that can't like solve basic problems that has no purpose. Mm. Like all the consumerist values we were sold about the middle class life and the American dream and everything have been exposed as sort of hollow. We thought that by now COVID would be in the rear view mirror and nobody would have to worry about it. And there's still, you know, Delta, the numbers are getting better, but it's still definitely a concern. You have these ugly fights over vaccinations and mandates and culture war invading even, you know, your local school district and all of that. So I think there's just a general sense of dread about the direction of the country. And then I think also, um, you know, you still have a population where maybe wages bumped up a little bit, but they've been stagnant for 40 years. That's right, yeah. And the very top got, you know, richer than you could, than anyone could have possibly imagined. And all of this was witnessed by the American people. Like, I got screwed. My stupid boss was willing to risk my life for me to continue to, like, make cheeseburgers for these assholes. And you expect me to be happy about the way things are going when, you know, these yeah. people at the top are getting mm. richer than ever. It is really amazing just the numbers on on the amount controlled by the top 1%, how it's changed over the last 30 years. I mean, in the 1980s, um, the top 1% controlled 10% of the national income, and now it's close to 22%. The Right, the same as before the Great Depression, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's and the same numbers before the Great Depression. When you look at, as you guys I'm sure have talked about, the increase in billionaire wealth during the pandemic, it's roughly $1.9 trillion since the pandemic alone. The Democrats' tax plan is certainly, um, you know, the first major effort to raise taxes on the rich and corporations in decades, but it would, you know, basically not even fully tax back the gains that the billionaires had since the pandemic alone. And... <laughs> I don't know if that captures. And Kirsten Cinema is throwing her body on the train tracks to make sure even that doesn't right. happen. That's right. And and just the sense of, you know, your broader point about 
whether we're in a nation in decline and decay, um, the extent to which a lot of these programs, once you drill down a little bit into them, they seem, whether they're necessary or not, you know, to be kind of bringing us out of the most egregious possible crisis point. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to be excited yeah. <laughs> about about that if for voters, I think, to say the absolute worst possible crisis is somewhat mitigated is a, a tough re-election message. Yeah, we, I mean, we needed, a, in my opinion, it was a transformational moment and we got a status quo manager candidate. You know, we've that's had, the bottom line. I mean, we've had people voting for a transformational moment since 2008, you know, and... Well, except Biden. Biden was not the transformational one. Yeah, Biden was like, let's just, just get survive away from another day. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. But Obama and Trump were the supposed to be the transformational candidates. Yeah. And ultimately, they were status quo managers, albeit in very different ways. I also think, you know, your point about um, Democrats not, like, selling their accomplishments well, I think is a good one, too, that also ties back into that same poll. I think it was the same Quinnipiac poll where um, people were not giving Democrats much credit for passing the child tax credit. Like, it was only, like, a bare majority. What do you expect when you, that never, even, you never say it? That even realized... You never say, I did that. That they were yeah. the ones that did it. But I think It's, it's also, I mean, I think when you look at the number of payments that people got and checks people got under Trump... Right. It's, it's, it's higher. not that different, yeah. Yeah, and... That's very true. Especially, like, if you go out to, like, rural parts of the country where Trump, you know, with the trade war with China, Trump was sending checks cutting checks left and right for farmers mm. and and also for people. Right. I, there was a great story in the Wall Street Journal about a border town. Do you remember this? Yeah, in I do. Texas? That's what I was going to bring up. That's right. You told me about this. Remember and, this? Yeah, it was fascinating. It was all about sort of working class Hispanic men yes. who had received these government checks and voted, were voting for Trump and very disconnected from a lot of the narratives you hear right. about why people supported him. Not, not to say that those are that's encompassive of everything. But if Democrats think, you know, well, we gave them money, what more do they want? You know, the predecessor did, too. And so to see the stimulus as a continuation, really, of Trump's policies rather than a break that people will give Biden special credit for, I think, is um, something to keep in mind. I think you also uh Biden made a strategic choice to lump everything together in these big reconciliation packages rather than nuking the filibuster and passing the programs individually so that you actually have to be the asshole who goes out and says, I don't want paid medical family medical leave or I don't want affordable child care or I don't want old people to get taken care of or have dental care or whatever. Once it gets lumped in all together, it becomes very easy to be like, this is too much spending and let's just talk about three and a half billion dollars. Yeah rather than the individual programs. Whereas, you know, with the Trump stimulus checks, like it was a check, it was very tangible. You know that you got it versus a whole pile of programs. And then I also think people are very skeptical that any of this is actually gonna happen or actually gonna benefit them personally. Yeah, I mean, I don't wanna be accused of being a shill, um, but I think like when you look at, you know, there's like really one attempt that I think you can point to where the Biden administration was like, I don't know what happened, but it seemed like they were trying to like play hardball with Joe Manchin. That's mm. when you remember Kamala Harris was in West Virginia, like giving yeah. local TV interviews and like Manchin freaked out. And like from everything I understand, he was like, do not do this again. Or like your agenda will be down in flames entirely. And you know, it, the Democratic Senate caucus is is like quite conservative. Like it it is certainly to the right of Biden. 
you know, or maybe that's not fair, but there are at least a dozen members of the Senate caucus who are to the right of Biden. And a lot of the media attention has focused, I think deservedly so, on cinema and mansion. But there's at least a dozen Democratic senators who would not vote to change the filibuster. And if mm. Biden had come out there a on... A dozen? Yeah. Whoa. See, okay, so to, to expound on that a little bit, uh, what was it, seven or eight that were against the $15 minimum wage? I thought it was like... And I, I thought that same seven or eight would also be a problem for reconciliation. But if you believe Biden, it actually is just two who are standing in the way. Yeah. Which I find absolutely fascinating. What do you make of... So Bernie, just the other day, directly called out Mansion and Cinema. And this is the first time he's done it. I, you know, people he's like you and me. He's to be very cordial. That's and what I'm saying. Like people like you and me have been going at him for a month or whatever, yeah. right? Bernie goes out the other day and he's like, "So uh, what I heard, I'm not saying this is true, <laughs> but what I heard is you're against lowering drug prices for the American people." <laughs> what What do you make of, like, I I don't know. Is Foz, is Foz right that if you just use the stick approach? you're done and it's not going to work. You know what I mean? Because all Bernie has at this point is a stick to offer. Biden is the one who could do a carrot or a stick. You know what I mean? So is that, do you think that'll work? Will it help? I like seeing it just because it feels good. But I don't know how effective yeah. it's going to be. It was enjoyable to watch. Right, yeah. <laughs> As a reporter, I have no opinions about any matter, um, including any Crystal. Because <laughs> I don't know if that, I, I want, it felt good to watch it and I want it to work, but he's not, it has to be come from Biden. Because yeah. he's the one who can offer the carrot or the stick. I do think it's good for the White House to have Sanders out there sort of... Being the attack dog. Yeah. Right. Like, they can say, like, look, what do you want us to do? Like, this is this is who we're dealing with. Like, they can use that yeah. with Manchin. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you guys, be, you know, people being the attack dogs on Sanders to be more aggressive allows, you know, Sanders to say, I have to go do at least this, right? Which allows the White House to say, I have to do at least this. That's at least the theory. I mean, and now you're seeing who knows if any of it works, right? Now you're seeing the, the bathroom incident with cinema. Yeah. The yacht incident with Joe Manchin. It's a houseboat. It, it's very but, interesting. <laughs> he's, he is smooth. I got to give him credit, though. Like, he, I watched the video. He handled I was like, it well. Damn, he almost talked me down from being mad at him for a second. Really? Yeah, he was <laughs> like, God bless you all. And then they were asking him questions, and he was like, we're working on that, and let me like he was trying to. He, was he actually smooth. answered. Right? Yeah, he, he answered. He was smooth. You, I can see why people like him. He's a talented politician, but also fuck him. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're seeing like there's very different theories of change in within the Democratic Party, right? And this is not new, but I remember this during the, you know, one of the first big stories I covered in Washington was the healthcare repeal effort, and you had this like very dedicated group of activists who just searing images of people, you know, with breathing tubes and wheeling into the Capitol and screaming their heads off in Mitch McConnell's office and being like, you will kill me. And the most aggressive activist tactics you can imagine. And people on the other side of the Democratic Party who were saying, let's make sort of reasoned arguments with the Republicans. Let's sort of talk about the facts and figures. Let's... Mm try to maybe work with them on other things. And I think that's a fascinating divide. Like what, and it's not, it's almost not even political. It's like, how do you persuade people in in life? You know, like what is the way to get people on your side? And the progressive theory is that, you know, begging politely (laughs) and just asking gently is not, you know, and I think people extend that to the workplace, you know, that, that for union efforts and, 
um, you know, making sure that your employer treats you right, that that, that power concedes nothing without a demand, mm. right? And is that the right approach for Mansion? I don't know, but I think it's interesting to see those play out. The frustrating thing is that like none of this is falsifiable and we don't have like a lab experiment yeah. to like mm -hmm. prove it, but um, I've certainly seen in many cases in Washington that people fold when they feel the heat of activists showing up at their house, but you know, whether that will be dispositive, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, these are ultimately these are human beings, right? And they're subject to the same emotions and um, and uh, shaming, frankly, that other people can be subjected to. And so I'm sure, like, to have that sort of invasive moment, whether you're Joe Manchin or whether you're Kirsten Sinema in the bathroom, that's going to make one way or another. It's going to have much more of a sort of emotional and mental impact. You think about. Um, you brought up Biden. I think he may be a little bit unusual in this regard. This is one of the things that I've um, maybe I've sounded like a, a shill for him on is that he does have the ability to be moved by individual people's stories who touch him. And so mm. you talked about those elder care workers who actually maybe potentially moved him significantly on a policy issue. Um I wanted to ask you a question that I genuinely don't know the answer to, which you're not really supposed to do, but it's like cardinal <laughs> right? You're supposed to only ask questions you know the answer to. But what is the pro and the con case for Jerome Powell at the Fed? So <laughs> that's a wonky question. <laughs> yeah, I know, but but no, no, I, I've but been hold on. This I think lot. I should set the, this up by saying, as much as we talk about policy and it's as important as that is, the Fed is maybe the most important actor for our economy. Period, and has you know in some people's opinion, massively fueled inequality. I mean, this is a, these are really important questions that don't get a lot of attention, even though they're wonky. So go ahead and lay out for no, me the I think the there's a compelling down. argument that now Treasury Secretary Yellen, then Fed Chair uh, Janet Yellen's decision to raise interest rates in 2015, you know, not me saying this, but some people think that that contributed to Trump's election in a huge way. I mean, the decline of the U.S. economy, the slowdown, at the end of the Obama administration, almost certainly fueled the Trump movement and contributed to Clinton's loss. Um, the interesting thing about Powell is that it's kind of fracturing the left, um, where a lot of people on the left that I talk to think Powell as a Republican who has been pushing quite aggressively for a hot economy, low interest rates, sustaining, you know, um, you know, a sort of fast, uh, income growth at the bottom, that mm -hmm. that is something that you don't want to give up on, that that having a Republican there, allowing Biden to reappoint a Republican to continue what in, under many other Republican or even Democratic Fed chairs could be a policy of hiking rates and slowing down the economy because inflation is too big of a concern, that that is the key and we need to focus on workers. Elizabeth Warren and other people, mostly associated with her, but also AOC and Ayanna Presley have been saying that what Powell is doing on the regulatory side, on the financial regulation front, may not be so bad now, or you may not be able to see the devastating consequences now because the banks, in part because of the Fed, are quite liquid. They think that those missteps are worthy of at least pressuring Powell with calls to not be re to not reappoint him. That their argument is essentially that Democrats control the White House and Congress. Why not get someone who can both do good labor market policy from Democrats' perspective mm -hmm. and actually regulate the banks and make sure that the Fed is doing all it can on climate change, which a lot of people think the Fed could do much more of. 
this has been, I think, kind of neglected, and I've tried writing about this a little bit, but it doesn't ever seem to catch on, but the banking system could be a huge avenue for combating climate change, right? If, if you say to the banks, you have to lend at much more expensive rates to fossil fuel companies, or mm. you can cut off lending to fossil fuel companies. I mean, these are not really even on the table beyond some environmental groups want, but there are a, a million steps short of that that they are not even taking um, to disquat, you know, to port, sort of make it more difficult to lend to the worst greenhouse gas emitters. So could Powell be doing more on that? Maybe, but is it worth paying the price of ensuring that you have someone there with bipartisan support that isn't going to get the White House flack from Republicans for the most part because he was a Republican or appointed by a Republican? Oh, oops. That'll be edited out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and ensuring that, you know, this hot labor market Fed policy continues. So I don't know what the answer to that question is. Um, Thank you for bringing that down for me. Didn't he just have a corruption scandal? Didn't I just see an article about $5 million in Powell? Or So you can answer, but no, no. there's been, uh, like, his deputy basically uh, was trading stocks right before they made a big um, move, a big decision that impacted the market, moved money, I think, from bonds to stocks or something like that to the tune of $5 million. And to uh, the, the Dallas and Boston presidents of the the Fed in those locations just resigned. One of them says it was health problems, but the other one admitted it was over a scandal, similar thing, making market moves that they potentially, through their position, could have either had insight into or sway over. And that, that's what Elizabeth Warren is saying. Like, how deep does this go? How high up do these does this trading go? And if it's not Powell himself, shouldn't he have been aware of it or, you know, making sure that it didn't happen? And, or firing this dude. Or firing this dude earlier once this came. <laughs> I don't know, actually... This is my limitations, but I don't know if he has the authority to fire mm. him, um, or at least calling for him to be fired at the minimum, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know why they're allowed to own stocks, honestly. You know, you I was thinking about this the other day, and you like take a step back, and this Fed scandal, I feel like they've all been like talked about in isolation, right? Like you have the Fed trading scandal, but remember, we also had Richard Congress. Burr and like right. Tom Price. Remember Tom Price under Trump and the White House and the administration. Right. Mm-hmm. Virtually every level of government had someone profiting, uh, almost certainly illegally, the or woman at least in Georgia, a violation of some yeah. law. Kelly They're Loeffler. Also, um, Loeffler exactly. Wall Street Journal just did a big analysis of judges and how they're not excusing, recusing themselves from cases where they have conflicts of interest. And just so happens that in two-thirds of the cases where they have a conflict of interest, they happen to rule on the side of whatever the interest it is that they have, you know, some sort of monetary tie to. Podcasters so, yeah. need to get in on this. And then, for sure. yeah. <laughs> and then you wonder why people are like, I don't really trust the government. You know, I don't really trust that the yeah. system is working. I don't really, uh, you know, believe the information that you're putting out. Yeah. And even if it's, that is not Biden's fault, that sense that there's another Fed scandal, right? That contributes to the sense that the government is not looking out for people. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Is it the last question I have for you, Jeff, is, um, you know, it seems like, uh, Money certainly is an important aspect of how this town runs in terms of campaign donations, in terms of uh, the amount of money spent on lobbyists, and also in terms of these public servants looking for 
after I'm in, out of the Senate, what's my job going to be and how am I going to ultimately cash in? There seems to be a major reluctance among a lot of media figures to ask politicians directly about this, to talk about this. I'm thinking in particular of, we played the clip on Breaking Point, I think you played it too maybe, of Fajikir gently suggesting maybe the fact that Heidi Heitkamp is getting paid explicitly to argue for low taxes for rich people is something that should be considered in a segment. The CNN anchor rushes in to defend her honor. Nobody's, nobody's besmirking you. I love that because he's so polite. Yeah. He's you know so, I mean? like, so this is like the most mild-mannered criticism. But yeah, the CNN anchor, who happens to be married to Peter Orzak, rushes in to say, let's not forget that Heidi Heitkamp lost her seat because of a vote of conscience. Why is this so uncomfortable to talk about the money that's at stake here and the way that that plays into these politicians' decisions? <sighs> Good question. Bezos that is, is really watching. Good question. This, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I did see a, a reporter from Bloomberg asked uh, Manchin about his, um, I don't know the specifics, but his private, I think, coal company. His coal interest, money? Yeah. Which I was shocked by because I'd never seen a reporter broach that subject with really any senator before. Um I, I would just say, with, without getting myself into trouble... Wait, what did Manchin say? Don't leave me hanging. Oh, he, no, he Manchin said, um, you better be changing the subject. Or really? Like Whoa. Yeah, Ooh, a very defensive response. You need to watch that. I do. <laughs> yeah, he was like, like, don't bring that question. Like, that's out of bounds, basically. Out of bounds. I think he also said that his, he, his investments have been in a public trust, which... I have, oh, that's the Trump thing. It's I, I, oh, and in that or, same, I, <laughs> by the way, in that same, sorry, Jeff, in that same clip with Heidi Heitkamp and Fashikir, the next part was her saying, it's outrageous that anyone would question Joe Manchin's yeah. intentions over his, like, being a coal baron. Anyway, go ahead. I, I can't remember. I think it was Elizabeth Warren had a line in, I don't know if it was on the campaign or one of her books, but it's sort of about, like, money in Washington's, like, kind of just a smoke that is in the air and people like stop realizing that they're breathing it. Right. Mm. Yeah. I tweeted something similar. I said, it's like a fish being in water. Yeah. You know, are you in water? What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, the ways in which it, you know, implicitly structures the field of the conversation is, um, certainly true. <laughs> but, it, so, but to Crystal's point, is it just a decorum thing and a politeness thing that it's just a line that we don't cross because we don't cross it because nobody crosses it? We don't want to question intentions. Or, yeah, yeah. What what is it? What's your sense of that? <laughs> well, I mean, the extent to which the American political and economic systems more broadly, I mean, I think about, you know, you guys mentioned the media and ask about that, which is a fair question. I mean, I, I don't want to get too ahead of my skis because I'm not supposed to be. And my job is not a media critic. Mm -hmm. But this is a problem that infects, you know, the nonprofit world. And yeah, it's not it's really not just about um, that sounds defensive. I, I just mean that the problem of money in Washington is it occurs in ways that are very hard to see from afar. Um, maybe people get a sense of it. But you know, connecting those dots, I think often once you're in the bubble, you kind of, you kind of can see that a little bit. Um, but think tanks that are treated as, you know, sort of nonpartisan and often have very good, incredible people working for them, you know, take tons of money from Gulf state interest and from big corporations and yep. to not ask how that 
prejudices, the right. policy recommendations that they include, I think is sort of like willfully blind. The Walmart heirs, the Walton family, have given $200 million to charities associated with the future of the Colorado River, which is a gigantic deal in the West, um, on the side of basically privatizing water wow. and using private markets to determine so it goes water goes to the highest bidder. And so to your point, like the money that is going from them to these individual universities, nonprofits, et cetera, um, maybe they already genuinely held that view. But also if they change their mind, they know that funding is going to get pulled and that's going to have huge ramifications for them, for their staff, for their future, for their ambitions, all of that. So it certainly shapes not just this town, but I mean, I across think the like, country. Like the tax plan is really going to be the place to watch for the the sort of the impact. And without weighing, you know, as a normative matter on whether this was the right approach or not, but a lot of reporters <laughs> were running very uh, loud um, sort of um, interference. No, no, no. <laughs> Loud, aggressive coverage of Biden's tax plans when they were first introduced. And Biden tried so hard to wall off the perception that this could affect any middle class person. Mm -hmm. But you had wall to wall coverage in, in some corners of Biden's proposal in particular to double the um, capital gains tax on investors earning over a million dollars a year. And with that in the context of that coverage, that plan is being whittled to the bone. I mean, we're going to get maybe to 27, 28%. And again, I, I can't comment on the media, but there's clearly a connection between the public discourse around the implications of that plan and the fact that that plan is going to be severely curtailed before it's passed. You know, mm. believe it or not, Joe Scarborough made a strong argument about this on air where he said... And there's a reason why he did it, because the, the taxes they're proposing to raise would impact him personally. So he doesn't want those ones to be raised. But he keeps bringing up, like, go after the billionaires, go after the corporations, raise their taxes. Like, you're coming after, you know, somebody who... Mere made, millionaires. Yeah, that's Mere right. millionaires like Joe Scarborough. <laughs> and, he, I mean, listen, fact of the matter is, in my opinion, I, of course, I think taxes should be raised on all of them, including Joe Scarborough. Yeah. But he has a point that you, if you leave the corporations and the billionaires off the table and you only tax the person... Who makes a million dollars a year? Yeah. Then that's you know you're you're missing where the money really is. Yeah, you're le you're leaving. And it's on purpose. Gigantic the, billionaires. Because of the influence peddling in Washington. Unscathed. Heidi Heitkamp getting paid to argue against the stepped up basis, which we won't get into the wonkiness of that that's today. But that was one of the, that's but that is one of the key ways that wealth is protected and and never taxed. Mm -hmm. So you're able to avoid the capital gains tax ever uh, happening on those on that wealth. And that basically was just quietly pushed aside. So even in the Pandora Papers, they said the reason why there's not many Americans listed in here is because they don't they're legally their, paying. Right, billionaires they're legally are legally paying three percent in taxes or, you know, the big uh, what was it? ProPublica report that came out, which went through all the billionaires. I think the one who pays the most is like Mike Bloomberg. And it's like 10 percent or something like that. And Bezos got the child tax credit. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, Jeff, I 
really appreciate you coming in and taking all these questions. I try to ask you questions that aren't going to get you in trouble because <laughs> I, I like you there at the Washington Post. I like you being no, able I... to, <laughs> to be there because I think your reporting is so important. You just do your job really well. Yeah, and, um, I use all your stuff, man. I really do. Yeah. I said to you guys. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I don't want to get you in trouble because I don't have the best reputation, but you're my favorite reporter. In, uh, he doesn't mean it. In mainstream media. If anyone's listening, he doesn't mean it. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Great to see you. Thank you, guys. Always love getting to talk to Jeff Stein because he has all the answers, seemingly. Um, so I have to say, though, after talking to him, I'm even more depressed about the state of the reconciliation bill because that moment when he broke down like, OK, so let's say it's two trillion, which is probably a best case scenario right now. You're talking about. 700 billion for climate. You're talking about, you know, if you just do a limited child tax credit for the next five years, you're at 1.3. And then you've got like maybe two more things you can possibly do. Yeah, I actually messed up. I should have asked him the question, what would the price tag, he wouldn't have known this though, so it's probably good I didn't ask him because it's hard to do off the top of your head. What would the price tag be if you just shorten the window for everything to five years? Yeah. You know, because uh, whatever that number is, I could support that bill. I could support that bill. Uh, but to your point, when he gets into the specifics, we know it's not going to be what I just described. So you are going to leave stuff behind. The question is, which things do you leave behind? And I have no doubt that there's going to be some of the things left behind that I'm going to look at and be like, oh, Brutal. oh yeah. yeah. So what do you do? I like the direction also of limiting the programs by time. And the reason that I like that is, look, I don't hate the idea of they're on a trial period and if people are like this isn't really helpful to me and it's not really important and they come up for a vote like and they have an up or down vote on that program that people are benefiting from right then if it really is transformation it really is effective then that is going to put up politicians in a tough place it's hard to roll back programs and support once they're there so for example medicare dental, hearing, vision. And this is a huge quality of life mm, issue. I mm. mean, the numbers that Jeff was saying, what did he say, like 40 million seniors who don't have access to regular dental care. Like, that is a crime yeah. in a rich country. I think once that's in place, that's a very hard thing to take away. Like, yeah, we're going to make it, okay, well, you had it, but now you're not going to be able to get your hearing aids. You're not going to be able to get your glasses. You're not going to be able to go to the dentist. You're not going to be able to get, you know, whatever it is that you need there. I think that's a hard thing to to pull back ultimately once it's in place. The problem with means testing, and I know we both have talked about this, but I think it's really important to underscore for people why we both are very opposed to means testing is because, first of all, it creates all these bureaucratic hurdles upon which Many a federal program has crashed and burned, mm -hmm. the housing uh, assistance being one of them. But also it enables this Republican, like, welfare welfare queen type it's of politics. It's the poison pill. That's yeah. what it is. It's They're sowing the seeds of its destruction right at the inception of the program. Exactly. Right. So that ultimately you can cast the beneficiaries the the of that program. The pro right. It's often done in racial terms. Yep. It's the undeserving poor right. who are getting this benefit. And the minute that you can sort of demonize it and vilify it like that you lose majority support and ultimately yeah. the program gets torn apart universality is super important um i mean that's that's our, our politics right our politics yes. are, it's got to be universal and i say it all the time but you know i have huge disagreements with you know with a, a lot of people on the right but would i deny them health care not in a million years i think right. you have a right to health care so, yes you know think think about it in those terms yeah i, I mean look i 
Everybody knows where I'm at on this thing. The absolute floor to me is $2 trillion. Uh, if, if there's means testing in it, I'm out. Uh, I'd have to vote no on it. Um, if they take out... Uh, they have to leave some climate stuff in there, you know, can't, like you say, and like the progressives were saying, no climate, no deal. I agree with that completely. Um, and you just got to hope that whatever gets stripped is, like, not too bad. But that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big question mark. But to, to get back to Jeff... Um, he really is wonderful at his job. He makes it so that average Joes and Janes, people like myself, can really get into the nitty-gritty of what's in these bills and understand it. And then I can present it to people who are average Joes and Janes just like me. And so we are all sort of, we can all kind of follow along with it because if there's one thing I can't stand, it's like sophistry and dense writing where it takes them two paragraphs to say one thing. And Jeff is fundamentally the opposite of that. He'll give you all the meat in a tweet, and you're just like, oh, sweet. Oh, look, I know what's in the bill, and I just read two tweets. Yeah. You know? um, incredible mind for detail, but incredible ability to boil it down to its basics and understand the uh, political dynamics that are at stake. I also thought it was interesting his view on the whole debt ceiling situation, that this was a purely tactical play from McConnell to try to hand more leverage to Mansion and Cinema in their quest to blow up the reconciliation bill. The uh, one thing I meant to ask him and forgot, because I think this is critical also to where we end up ultimately with the reconciliation bill, is like, how much do they actually care about the bipartisan infrastructure deal? Because all along the idea has been holding that hostage, tying that together with the reconciliation deal, that that was significant leverage for progressives to get as much out of this as possible. I just, I, I genuinely don't know how much they care about that infrastructure deal, how much corporate America cares about that infrastructure deal, because ultimately, of course, that's who's who they're serving. Yeah, that's true. Um, and how, what does Joe Biden want? What does he really want? You know, obviously, he wants the traditional smaller package for the infrastructure deal. But what does he want in the reconciliation bill? Like, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, to your point, what does he want as a top line number? What does he want uh, for the meat of the bill? And are you willing to go to the mat for it? And if so, how? You know, those are all unanswered questions. and We're going to have to wait and see. Indeed. Um, always grateful for Jeff. I, as I said, I tried not to, <laughs> there are a lot of other things that we could ask him about the media and, um, you know, working at the Washington Post and all of that, but I'm so genuinely grateful to have him there that I tried not to put him in a tough spot, but sometimes um, it's avoidable. I didn't, I didn't try to not put him in a tough spot. Uh, He's very good at being diplomatic. He's very good at, you know, kind of taking our very loaded or, like, opinionated questions and answering them in a neutral way. Yeah, I mean, look, you and I are opinionated. That's what we do. That's par for the course for us. He's a straight economics reporter. Um, And, look, we asked him a lot of straight economics questions and then along with some stuff that was more on the opinion side, you know? Mm -hmm. So. I, I think he's a lovely, like, lovely guy. What if guy. Merrick Garland went after Joe Manchin's daughter, for example? I have to, I have to bring it up because honestly, I mean, let's let's keep it real for a minute. My idea is genius. Whose idea was it? Whose idea was it? It was my idea. You came up with that idea? Yes. Oh, okay. Your idea was genius. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to you, I had internalized it. I came up with that idea. <laughs> Some classic uh, gender dynamics playing out here. Right are they? Now. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. all good though. Well, Crystal Ball came up with the idea, and I've just repeated it about 14,000 times publicly. Well, but I think that is, I haven't really, I haven't leaned into it at all. Uh, yeah, so, did you even mention it publicly? I don't I don't think so. I th- Why didn't I, I you th- do I th- it? I think I let you run with it. Why didn't you bring it up? Um, that you, you brought it up. It's is it, all good. Is it too risque for, I mean, I know you're a little more straight-laced on breaking points than I am on secular talk. Yeah. Is that what it is? Probably. And also, like, I guess I just... 
even though I think it's a tactic, that sort of hardball, like I'm not squeamish about holding out funding. If it's in the service of something genuinely good, and also his daughter is totally corrupt and the whole family is corrupt, so it's not like it's not just. Yeah, and, but I mean, but regardless, I just, they should go after her, right? I just don't think, I just don't see it as a, the realm in, of possibility. Right. So yeah. it's less interesting to me because I don't see it as like in the feasible realm of what might actually happen. But that's the problem, right? Isn't that mm -hmm. the exact problem? Yes. Because I promise you, if it was FDR or if it was LBJ, they'd be having that conversation. What, can, what oh, do yeah. we have on them? What dirt do we have on them? What can we use against them? And they, you know, like I said, the flip side of the coin is carrot and stick. Okay, I'll, I'll be your best friend if you want. I can mm -hmm. be your best friend. I can make all your dreams come true. Mm -hmm. You just got to do this one thing. I mean, look, Washington, D.C., a lot of stuff. Did you see the movie Lincoln? No. Okay. The, everything they had to do to get stuff done is, like, laid out in detail, mm -hmm. and it's phenomenal. And you're like, oh, so these are people. They respond to human incentives. Right. And so you need to play on those human incentives to get stuff done. Yeah. But we have this weird thing in politics now where it's like, Nobody wants to acknowledge that. You know what I mean? Like, th that's not... The media pretends that everything is ideological and everybody's just having a kind conversation. This gentleman is talking to this contest lady. contest of ideas. Right, yeah. yeah. And, like, let's get behind closed doors and say, hey, hey, I have a point on this, point of order. And they, everybody says... <laughs> well, I, I can't stop doing that. <laughs> but that's not what it's like. What it's like is Kirsten Cinema took $750,000 from Pharma and then was like, I was for lower drug prices, now I'm not. Right. You know? And so what are you going to do with that fact? What are you going to do with that fact? Well, I got an idea. What if you call a press conference and you do what Bernie just did? They also, yeah, they also put decorum above everything else. Which is why the Bernie thing was a big deal. Yes. And I, to me, it was really noteworthy because when I talked to Bernie, he was very careful not very. to, not to, I mean, I even, I asked him a question about that, his mansion's daughter's former, you know, right. where she worked in West Virginia and they're shutting down. And will you call on the Biden administration to invoke the Defense Production Act to make sure those jobs are protected, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just like, I, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> so um, this is a different, for the modern current incarnation of Bernie, this was very notable tone shift. And yeah, he put him on. Aggressive. He put him on blast. It was some, it was vintage Bernie. I heard that uh, you're not in favor of lowering drug prices. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I heard. So maybe you should come out and tell the people if you're in favor of lower drug prices or not. Maybe you should do that. I was watching like, yeah. Yeah, it was, like it was sad. I don't know if it moves the needle at all, but it was very satisfying well, to watch. So but, thank you, know, you, Bernie. It coincides with, this is something I wanted to get to with Jeff, but we didn't have time to get to, is uh, the public pressure that's being put on Cinnamon Mansion, and I was bracing for the media backlash against it. Mm. It never came. In fact, it cut the other direction. I covered The View. The, the women on The View were like, why is she doing this? Like, what? why aren't you representing the people of your home state that say they want all this well, stuff? Well, I would say it's been mixed. Also, by the way, I like that you just did the Joe Biden stage whisper. That was, I like that. Yeah, you did. Anyway, no it's idea. been mixed because you also had Maureen Dowd, like, describing her as, like, a silent, like, with a Greta Garbo of Congress, she said, something ridiculous like that. You had Michael Smirconish, like, oh. Oh, Smirconish the, I covered. He's, yeah, they're, but, but they're the Crystal, answer, not the problem. Three people watch Michael Smirconish. 
Spanish, and two of them are his relatives. Yeah, so he doesn't I count. know, but he's but, he's still. But and there was there was a, what was that? There was another one I covered that was equally egregious. Oh, the Axios thing, like oh, the too. wine drinking one, triathlete yeah, yeah. is up before she marches but to her own drum. I will so. say, the View. There was an MSNBC show that mm-hmm. turned on her, and there was a CNN show. Don Lemon had on Paul Krugman, and Paul Krugman was like. The corporate Democrats are the problem, it's yeah. not the progressives. Well, you even see like Jonathan Chait being, uh, right. you know, mm-hmm. calling out that, hey, it's actually the progressives are the ones who are like, let's negotiate. Like, right. let's work out a deal. Mm-hmm. What is it? And who already have come down significant. I don't know that he made this point, but they've already come down way beyond, you know, even what Biden ran on. Right. They're at three and a half trillion is less than what Joe Biden even ran for president on. The bill is popular. It's popular in their home states. It has nothing to do with them representing diverse constituencies or whatever, and everything to do with the money that's behind it and the fact that the media cannot point that out and will not point that out means that they're not telling you what's really going on here. Very true. Uh, That was one of the more substantive podcasts that we've done, which, you know, I'm very happy to do because people want to know, like, what's really going on with this stuff in Washington if they care about this stuff even a little bit. And that, that's what we got in this podcast. So yeah. it was very enlightening. It, you know? Very enlightening. I learned a lot um, yeah. mm-hmm. just from talking to Jeff over the course of the hour. So Yeah. So anyway, um, subscribe to Crystal Kylan Friends on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video and gets it a day early. If not, you could always listen to it for free in audio format a day later. Uh, thank you to all the our subscribers on Substack. We love you guys deeply. And Indeed. still try to get us in front of Barry Weiss. We can give you a behind-the-scenes tour here. Um I want to do it. Like, I genuinely want to do that video, but Barry Weiss apparently is, makes a gazillion dollars in his way in front of us, even though we're one one spot behind her on the list. Yeah, you know? what are you going to do? But anyway, so subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends on Substack. Love you guys. We'll see you soon. <laughs>